Welcome to episode 127 of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, Amazon finalized its acquisition of MGM Studios. As you'll recall, it was waiting for the FTC to, to move on this. Uh, the FTC actually did not move on it. They did not um, uh, decide to, uh, to, to vote on it. Instead, they allowed the time to lapse. And uh, by default, that acquisition was, uh, was approved. Earlier, EU regulators had decided that the deal did not violate antitrust regulations because, uh, quote, MGM's content cannot be considered as must-have. Now, if you're a James Bond fan or a Rocky fan, you might disagree, but uh, that was the MG, uh, that was the EU's ruling, and the FTC was kind of caught in a in a more uh, peculiar situation in that the head of the FTC has has long been touting her desire to stop monopolies and to uh, to stop large tech companies in particular from making these type of large acquisitions. The uh, five-person uh, head of, of the FTC, panel of the FTC, is missing a, a voting member, and so there are only two Republicans and, and two Democrats on it, and it looked like they probably didn't have the votes to uh, to block that merger and then ultimately go to court over that merger. And so instead, not, not even calling for a vote allowed the time to lapse. This is a great case study in the criteria that we have long talked about on the podcast, which is how do you evaluate acquisitions by big tech companies? The European regulators are exactly correct. Amazon purchasing MGM Studios doesn't really change the competitive nature of the studio content development landscape. If we look at, say, the streaming market here in the U.S., Amazon is not a market share leader. There's really healthy competition. There have been a lot of entrants recently. You could argue that Amazon is something of an underdog because they don't have the content assets of a Warner Media or a Disney. And in fact, we're even seeing Warner Media in its acquisition by Discovery Networks adding to uh, creating an even richer content library. Uh, there was recent news that HBO Max is, is going to include both Discovery content and Warner Media content. One of, one of their services will combine all that content. So that should, certainly in terms of volume, really help that, uh, that service compete with, with Netflix and, uh, and Disney+. Plus. Uh, but on the other hand, you look at how the acquisition could really play in and complement other parts of Amazon's business. So certainly the growing advertising business, uh, the company has been making a much bigger push into smart TVs uh, and advertising. If you look at the Echo smart speaker business, more of that is moving toward smaller displays or even larger displays like the wall-based Echo device that Amazon released late last year could easily double as a 
television for a, a smaller bedroom. So, so by itself, again, it's not necessarily a game changer, but you see how it becomes a component for many of these other businesses that uh, Amazon is seeing a lot of momentum in. Uh, yeah, it, clearly they're gaining a massive catalog of content, 4,000 movies, 17,000 TV episodes. And and that to me is also, as you think about advertising, a really interesting piece of Amazon's future is around what they do uh, with TV content, serialized content. We've seen Disney Plus do a phenomenal job with this, with a number of spinoffs. If you think about WandaVision, which arguably was one of the early ones, they found great success under the that uh, you know that uh, genre Hawkeye. Uh, there's been another uh, a number of uh, spinoffs that have essentially been, in some ways, mini movies, but they've been structured as TV episodes. Many of them dropping on a weekly basis so that you can't just binge watch them all in, in one episode, but you're forced to maintain your subscription and and then watch them as they drop. And you wonder, first and foremost, if there are titles within the MGM catalog that would make for good spinoffs. Could we see spinoffs from the, the Rocky franchise or maybe the, the James Bond franchise? Uh, Ross, you were talking about James Bond Jr., which was a... <laughs> yeah, James, uh, James uh, Bond does not have a great uh, TV serialization history, but hey, you know, you, you can always try again. Well, and, and you wonder if you could have a spinoff that, that is couched within the James Bond themes, right. but, but doesn't involve 007. You know, it involves maybe someone else. Money Penny and maybe that, someone else. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or even somebody else within the organization, right? right? It's a, a, a different uh, individual. So or or maybe with uh, villain movies being so in vogue right now, they could do something on Spectre, really, really drill down on that organization. So. Yeah, so I think, I think uh, you know, will we see spinoffs? How will they use the TV content? And then if you think about how Amazon has really developed their advertising business, uh, they are now one of the biggest advertisers or, you know, advertising platforms uh, on the web today behind Meta, behind Google, but but growing quickly. And all of this content gives them a, a tremendous opportunity. They're already doing uh, f- essentially ad supported content here in the U.S., with IMBD TV. They've got mini TV in, in India and they uh, late last year. Uh, requested the trademark for mini TV here in the U.S., so maybe we'll see more advertised-supported content uh, here. Jeff Bezos at the company's 2021 annual meeting noted that the acquisitions thesis here is really very simple. MGM has a vast, deep catalog of much-loved intellectual property. With the talented people at MGM and Amazon Studios, we can reimagine and develop that IP for the 21st century. So it's clear that they want to continue to expand those brands. And I think if you just take a look at the catalog that they've got, they'll they'll be looking to build that out. Also, Amazon owns a, a video game platform and they own studios in that space. So, you know, have we seen successful 
video games and, and other uh, engagements for these 4,000 movies? Maybe not. I, I don't know that uh, we've had a great Rockies franchise video game or, or, you know, I'm sure James Bond has been been tried. And again, maybe those aren't the, the direction that they go. Maybe those are in a category by themselves. But uh, you have seen the Rocky franchise revitalized in recent years with uh, with its spinoff and uh, more more certainly could be built out of the gyms that were introduced in the spinoffs or, you know, or any number of things. So there's a lot more that could play there. And it's clear that Amazon wants to take full advantage of that. In other news, we this week we saw announcements from the Fast Identity Online Alliance. This is uh, often known by its acronym, the FIDO Alliance. They have been uh, for some time working to create a, an easy way to uh, to log into your devices without having to ultimately potentially type in the uh, the password. Apple gave its backing to FIDO back in 2020. Their their uh, implementation of that they refer to as the passkeys and iCloud keychain. Um, others and in, in Windows and and obviously on Google. Uh, devices have been working to implement this as well. And not only are passwords a bane of uh, users of all kinds of services everywhere, people forget their passwords or they engage in security practices that are less than sound, such as reusing passwords or using easy to guess passwords. Uh, it's also one of the main ways that hackers gain access to resources by guessing passwords or phishing passwords. So all other things being equal, a password-free approach is a more secure approach. And that's uh, really what the industry, a big part of what the industry is going after. It's the security but it's also the convenience and really what the FIDO Alliance is looking at now. For some time, there have been these devices uh, such as those made by YubiKey, where you could take what looks like a little USB flash drive and put it in your laptop or tap it against your phone or have it connect via Bluetooth, in which case it's it's always connected. And that acts as essentially your digital key, your authentication. The issue is that not a lot of folks have gone out and bought these keys. So the question becomes, can we use a device that the consumer does have with them to act as one of these devices since they're connected via Bluetooth anyway, we could use the phone, we could use something like a smartwatch, we could use the laptop. And uh, Sean, you mentioned Apple's approach. Uh, Google has long had a, a feature called Smart Lock uh, that allows you to use your phone to access, provide access to services. Microsoft really pushes this idea of going passwordless with your Microsoft account, although they do caution that some older services may still require a, a password if you if you decide to forego that. So, so it's really about convenience uh, and one of several efforts, incidentally, designed to try to get us past 
the password. There's been uh, a lot of focus, for example, on a startup called Beyond Identity, uh, which was uh, co-founded by Jim Clark, of course, uh, strongly identified with the rise of Netscape uh, during the uh, during the early days of, uh, of web browsers. Uh, and that company is really more on the multi-factor authentication front. So uh, perhaps you don't have a physical connection or digital device-based local connection, proximity-based collection connection to uh, the the service you're you're looking to access. <clears throat> you would be able to use uh, if, if the provider of the service used beyond identity and again taking uh, lessons from the netscape days they're giving away the core service for free uh, to service providers uh, then you would automatically be contacted via text or perhaps email or an app in order to validate that it is indeed you looking to uh, use this uh, the service and not someone uh, just trying to impersonate you. Uh, also, a lot of focus in terms of this proximity-based approach with ultra-wideband. Uh, and we've seen both Samsung and Apple roll out proximity-based approaches to digital keys to unlock car doors, for example, home locks. Uh, today, it is a feature that's pretty constrained to the highest end of the cell phone uh, market, but uh, the Bluetooth uh, group is, is also working on implementing this functionality. And they have been uh, talking up quite a bit about how they intend to compete uh, very aggressively with ultra wideband in terms of this very high degree of precision uh, in terms of location that is relied upon in order to enable functionality such as opening your your car lock you know you, you definitely want that to be something where there's a very high level of certainty uh, around the precision at, at which you're not only next to the car but at, at the right lock uh, you know or, or in the right position to open the car door so uh, a lot happening on this front uh, if the if Fido can make good on this standard and drive adoption, uh, it could really go a long way toward easing uh, access to services uh, and uh, doing away with things, hopefully, uh, like uh, like password managers, uh, for example, which are a kind of a tweener uh, means of, of trying to get past all the hassles of passwords. And it's clear that companies are pushing us strongly towards two-factor authentication. Uh, earlier this week, we saw news that uh, Facebook locked a number of people out who did not activate Facebook Protect early in March. Uh, several users had gotten what they considered a mysterious spam-like email that was uh, alerting them to the to the need to uh, to and their ultimately requirement to adopt. Facebook's uh, advanced security, Facebook Protect. Uh, this is really was addressing individuals that they felt were at, at high risk for for malicious hacking. People like human rights defenders, journalists, government officials. But uh, you could easily imagine it starting with this group and, and rolling out to uh, others. So. Uh, a strong desire by platforms to lock down their environments, to mandate two-factor authentication, and uh, 
solutions like like the FIDO Alliance could help smooth the way towards two-factor authentication, making it easy and, and, and relying on trusted devices. One of my takeaways from this Facebook Protect story is uh, a theme that I have uh, returned to a couple of times, which is the difference in approaches that Facebook, now Meta, and Google take. Uh, and, and this is a great example of a completely contrasting approach. So similar idea, right? Both Facebook and Google want to protect users that they perceive are at a higher risk. Facebook takes the step of locking these people out of their account. When Google has been dealing with a similar issue, they took the exact opposite approach. They just enforced two-factor authentication. They have told a lot of folks in this group, look, come a certain date, you are going to have to use two-factor authentication. Uh, and it's just implemented by default. Uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, you don't have the option to opt in or opt out, which I guess you could say is not ideal, but I think most people would much prefer to have to start using two-factor authentication, even if they're forced to do so, than to be locked out of their account until they, they opt in. So uh, in fairness to Facebook, I'm not sure of a lot of the details of how they implemented this. Maybe, maybe it was similar, but if it, if it matches the description of, of the coverage in, in that users were not able to access their accounts at all. And it wasn't just that they couldn't access it until they engaged, uh, opted into the two-factor authentication. Then it just, again, shows how Google somehow manages to approach a lot of the same issues, media-driven issues that Facebook has to confront, and yet seems to do it in a way that leaves people less angry. <laughs> <laughs> at them, uh, you know, they, they just seem to have a better a better handle on on how to how to implement these kinds of changes. So, in other meta related news, uh, it was of course South by Southwest this week, and Mark Zuckerberg joined South by Southwest virtually, and uh, there he announced uh, as part of his comments that Instagram would support NFTs uh, in the future. A little bit vague on when that will be rolled out and what that will look like, but uh, suggesting that Instagram users will be able to mint things from within that environment. Uh, Meta has obviously made a very big push to, to make Instagram a popular platform for, for commerce, especially as it relates to uh, fashion. Mark Zuckerberg noted in his, uh, his comments there at South by that uh, most of the things that he wears today, he's bought through an Instagram or Facebook shop or ad. So quite a commitment to uh, Facebook and Instagram as shopping portals. Uh, but they have made a very big push to allow the influencers that have built big presences on Instagram to monetize their, their presence there. And uh, it, I think an extension to NFTs makes a lot of sense. One could argue that uh, Meta, being very committed to, so committed to the metaverse that they renamed the entire company uh, Meta, ha has actually been slow to adopt some of what many people see as key components of the metaverse. 
things like uh, uh, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, and and the ability to to make transactions, both buy and sell using cryptocurrencies. Obviously, Facebook had gone down another route in, in, in an attempt to create their own uh, currency and and uh, you know financial institutions. Maybe maybe they had ambitions of being the central bank of the metaverse. Uh, but uh, one could argue that they are a, a little bit late in some of these things that that seem to be core uh, to the metaverse. And and uh, here we're seeing that NFTs will come soon to uh, Instagram. I think it aligns quite well with what they're what they're trying to accomplish there. And it will be interesting to see. To me, equally interesting is not only that you can mint within the and uh, essentially create an NFT within that environment, but that you would able to, uh, as the uh, as they like to say, burn uh, an NFT or redeem an NFT. So could you exchange NFTs for physical products through the Instagram platform? I think that will be very interesting to see as well. Uh, we've seen a number of, of high-profile applications where NFTs were launched by artists and they were then able to redeem that NFT for the underlying art, or uh, in other words, destroy the NFT and take delivery of the underlying art, or uh, in cases, keep the NFT and then have the underlying art destroyed so that only one existed in the universe. So I think we'll see some really creative ways of how Instagram's core influencer market uses this, especially as it relates to, to fashion and commerce. Well, it's right on point with something that you've often talked about, Sean, which is the need for these platforms to enable monetization opportunities for those who have invested so much time in building up their their audiences there and to be able to leverage that audience for more than just promotion or indirect commerce, advertising, really, uh, to uh, show them goods and services and urge them to uh, offline uh, purchase or in another channel uh, to purchase those uh, those goods and services. Uh, NFT, as you, I think, uh, indicated, is, is still a lot of volatility uh, around what we're going to see there. I mean, that goes hand in hand with the kind of experimentation that that you mentioned, uh, I, I think that uh, shorter term there are probably better opportunities around uh, purchasing physical goods and digital goods. Uh, but it's definitely a great opportunity to help educate the uh, consumer on what uh, NFTs are. Uh, something that Facebook. Uh, again, to your point, was never really able to get off the ground with with their own cryptocurrency uh, efforts. And uh, that was an unusual situation uh, because Facebook had actually put together a, a pretty good coalition on its cryptocurrency efforts, but it all came crumbling down uh, pretty, pretty quickly uh, in part because it, it just did not have the public trust uh, to engage in this emerging form of, of currency. So uh, in, in, in moving it to Instagram and I think containing the scale of it, it's going to make things uh, a little bit easier. It's not one of these 
kind of winner, you know, either either all or nothing propositions as uh, as as the as the cryptocurrency uh, effort effort was, and uh, you know, clearly they they weren't able to to get that off the ground. The other piece to this is that people who are acquiring NFTs want to have a place where they can display that collection. And, you know, long term, maybe we have these environments in the metaverse. Maybe we have homes in the metaverse. Maybe we have offices in the metaverse. We want to hang artwork on the walls. And and maybe that's where these NFTs show up in the short term. Uh, we'll want to see them on the screens that we're using today. So at CES, we saw that Samsung was making made announcements to bring NFTs to their televisions so that you could display the NFTs on the televisions when you weren't watching, uh, you know, an MGM movie on on Amazon Prime. And uh, I think Instagram makes a lot of sense there. So we might see a more fundamental shift to the platform where you have your stories, you have your traditional uh, posts that you're showing in Instagram, but maybe you also have a place where you're able to highlight your NFT collection and you have a place you can permanently park your NFT collection so that people can see what what you have. And and maybe, you know, the, the hope is that they can build out... Um, Instagram as as a place where one goes to see what what NFTs you hold and and uh, you can see a, a broader collection. So I think we could see some really interesting things around that as well. Not just the influencers using NFTs to monetize their presence there, but also for for everyday individuals who want a place to park their NFTs and and display them to the world. Sean, you talked about how Facebook or Meta has been a little bit behind the curve on some of the economic elements of the metaverse with what you're offering now in terms of having virtual homes in virtual reality or the metaverse in order to display these collections. It leads me to think about what other companies might have that kind of opportunity. And of course, I tend to think about companies with the more advanced digital world ecosystems today, such as Roblox or or Minecraft, perhaps. And, and that poses, I think, an interesting question because these economies, if you will, uh, in, uh, in, these, in these massively uh, multiplayer games have always been closed economies. So how do you, you know, with, with the publisher uh, setting basically all the rules for what the value of everything is? So how do you potentially introduce consumer-generated uh, value uh, into something like Roblox uh, without throwing things into disarray? It, uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, challenge, but, but also an opportunity for them. Yeah, and you could imagine that we will eventually see more NFT you know, content, digital content being minted in type of, inside of those environments because they are bringing the brands inside of those environment environments. I think of what Chipotle did within Roblox last October when they did their, uh, you know, they traditionally do their boo-rito event in stores. <laughs> they they did it for the first time in the, the Roblox environment. And so you could mint things there. So I think we'll, we'll see more happening in those environments as well. It is certainly an exciting time. We did see Mark Cuban at South by Southwest talking about the, the, the bubbly, uh, feelings he has around NFTs right now that feels like some things are uh, are are overhyped, and he remembered 
and reflected on the early days of the internet where lots of startups were coming into existence. So we probably will see a, a shuffling out of this, but uh, some form of this is likely to stay and influence these digital environments moving forward. With that, we will wrap up this episode of Techspansive. Thanks so much for joining us again. I am Sean Dubrovac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>